0: This episode is brought to you by the Muslim Voices Project at Indiana University. The project's mission is to counter Islamophobia by providing a platform for amplifying diverse local, regional, and global Muslim voices and critically dismantling Islamophobic discourse and representation. You can find them online at muslimvoices.indiana.edu and on Twitter at Muslim Voices. Today, we have a very special guest. She is also from Lahore, Pakistan, so I'm already very, very excited to interview her. Shazia Sikander is a visual artist who's had major solo exhibitions throughout the world, including the Weatherspoon Art Museum, North Carolina, the Asian Art Museum, San Francisco, the Aga Khan Museum, Toronto. The Asia Society Hong Kong Center, the Guggenheim Museum, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, Washington DC, the Museum of Contemporary Art Tokyo and the list goes on. Shazia is also a self-proclaimed citizen of the world. And what's fascinating about her work is that it offers a different and more inclusive way that transcends geopolitical borders and radically disrupts assumptions around national, political, historical boundaries. She interrogates the idea of culture, identity, tradition. She questions if tradition is malleable or not? How does tradition evolve? Who are the gatekeepers of the tradition? And through her walk, she disrupts those stereotypes that exist. I can't wait to share her interview with you. So let's get started.
1: I was also looking at how identity is so mercurial. Like if I wore it now, is everybody gonna think of me a certain way? If I took it off, is that gonna become a gesture in of itself?
0: So hello again, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Good to be in conversation here today. Yes, and for listeners who may not know this, you and I actually had a phone conversation a couple of days ago. um, And what was apparently a formal call to discuss recording logistics turned out into this hour-long heart-to-heart. And by the way, when I hung up, I was like, damn it, if I had my recorder on, I could have recorded that conversation and shared it with our listeners. So Shazi, I want to start with your story. To me, the way I see you and your work, art comes to you so effortlessly. And most of what you do artistically is shaped by your childhood and your experiences. As a kid growing up under dictatorship, I want you to share your story, your life journey thus far. (laughs) <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> well, um, yeah, we can, you know, definitely, uh, it'll unfold as we continue our conversation. But I grew up in Pakistan. I came to the US in 1993. So before that, growing up, say, yeah, definitely in the 80s, you mm-hmm. know, that's in the background is uh, the military dictatorship which is the Soviet-Afghan-US Park War, which is, what, 1978 to 19, I think 1992, right? So that is definitely that time of so much change that's going on, you know. There's a specific sort of polarization happening between the public and private spaces, also, culturally. And I think at that time, you know, it kind of signaled a discouraging notion towards dissent and even creative expression. So mm. so that sort of shift in the culture that I think was very instrumental in some way in, in how I found myself wanting to go into the direction of humanities and, you know, eventually visual art. That's definitely there's that the blasphemy laws. There's the emergence of those. There's the Hadood ordinances, which were kind of hovering. So you do see the shift in human rights and women's rights in in a broader space.
0: So what was the environment like at home? What did your parents do? So the
1: household, you know, grew up in a very multi-generational with grandparents, fathers, um, parents, and in one house with uncles, aunts, lots of cousins, so different families. So we grew up in that sort of household. And also in the 80s, my father also uh, took a job in Somalia. So there was a time when um, exposure to Mogadishu, to going to another Muslim country, especially, you know, Somalia, this is an earlier period before the wars and the famine. In early childhood, you also got a very interesting kind of sense and juxtapositioning of the range in in Muslim experiences, so that's also and especially exposure to Africa. So that for me is kind of um, was well, very instrumental also in in how I was understanding how language shifts language around hmm. identity and culture and and how to see things from multiple perspectives. But within the household, yes, it was um, you know it was uh, it was a very interesting mix of you may call it the spiritual secular muslimness huh. and there i think I, I i was always very close to to my grandparents also and you know there was always a respect for listening and speaking your mind and an encouragement towards um, uh sharing uh communicating so uh, so i always felt that i i was uh, supported in my desire and attempt to sort of, as I grew as a a younger child, to be able to participate in conversations.
0: When did you know you were interested in art? Because in a lot of Pakistani households, and I don't want to stereotype or generalize, but there is this expectation of certain professions. um, For girls, especially, it's like, you know, you become a doctor that's the prevalent narrative that we hear. But you were interested in something different. When were you able to verbalize that? And what was your parents' reaction?
1: I was good at drawing, I think, from a ch- early childhood. Uh, hmm. But I was actually quite a good student. So I was good at a lot of things, very much a studious kid. And... <laughs> um, and art came uh, much later for me as a clear picture of like this is the direction I'm going to uh, engage with but you know mm. um earlier um in school high school i was just i knew that i was good uh with the facility of drawing and be able to also communicate through the language of drawing but it mm. was never something that was like oh this is a direction that i'm going to pursue professionally it was, um, it, it was just one of the many things that were part of uh, the learning experience. It's later, I think, uh, when I was at the Canadian College for Women mm. and studying language and even uh, mathematics and, you know, economics. And at that <laughs> time, I think I got interested that I, uh, I was curious about the National College of Arts I was gravitating towards it oh. a couple of i think a couple of experiences one would be a uh, women action forum was very much uh active at that time and some of the founding members i was engaged with uh the late artist lala roh and mm. uh, she did an internship or worked with their office uh, which was mostly i think the publication part of it. It was under the name Seymour Foundation. I remember working with Seymour Foundation being um, uh, definitely being encouraged by Lala Roh to, uh, to sort of look at the National College of Arts. And, you know, at that time when you think that these are the crossroads that you're, you're learning how women's rights issues, as well as what is community, what is mm-hmm. art, how art starts to intersect. In those zones. There's these kind of things that start to create a momentum where one is wanting to go in the direction where, you know, where you're going to explore expression. You're going oh. to like, uh, question the shifts in culture and how do you participate. So, so language of art seemed much more
0: natural to me. And then how did you end up in the US?
1: Yeah, so Canad, of course, was a normal place for a lot of women to go. It's a college for women. And I think over there, I was a little bit bored. I was a little bit like everybody seems to be waiting for this, you know, kind of a phase of like marriage. And, this, <laughs> and it's a very, it was a very cultural thing, at least in my generation. And I, so to go to the National College of Arts at that time was quite radical, It wasn't something that, you know, that was being encouraged. It's definitely not how it is now in recent years. So I did Mm. have to fight for that within my family. And I think to make them understand that, first of all, a career in the arts wasn't really about just a career. It was more like I wanted to, like, understand and explore and participate in a broader conversation. So... Initially it was like, okay, if you study architecture, I think that was more relatable to mm-hmm. at least parents. And so it was a slow process, right? So finally when I'm there, and then while at NCA for four or even more years, um, I gravitated in the direction of tradition. You know, you have to really see that at that time, um, everything is still a little bit, it's very Westernized models of education. So we have this whole colonial history. So like right. studying other things that would be more prevalent than a focused uh, engagement with uh, the traditional languages, visual languages from the region or even broader regions, Central Asia, South Asia. So understanding like the term miniature painting. So there was a department miniature painting and there was it was the least popular. There was just, just like, either you did it as a side thing to get extra marks or you know, just a secondary thing, but you'd never mm. majored in it. And I gravitated to that culture. Like I wanted to question why we have a department which uh, seemed to gain attention as soon as there was a foreign entity being introduced into the school or like, look at our culture. Mm. But outside of that, there was just a disregard or this kind of dismissive approach, dismissive gesture. And that interested me a lot because I think intuitively that was about how the colonial baggage persists.
0: Exactly. But talking about um, miniature painting, now that requires a lot of discipline. And I'm not an artist, but I have some idea of how it works. How long did it take you to cultivate the amount of discipline needed to do miniature painting?
1: Many years. All those Mm. years at NCA, my time was literally like 10, 14, 15 hours every day. Wow. But it was also um, the nature of the relationship with the the master teacher, Bashir Mm. Ahmed. He expected that and demanded that. He was always at the school. So, you know, I think there was this moment where he recognizes that he has a student who's coming to it in a very serious manner. And hmm. I was also aware that at that time, there was very little interest in other, in my peers in studying miniature painting and dedicating uh, to its language as a, as a major subject, right? So there's this kind of, uh, th- this shift that's that happens where I take on miniature painting and he hmm. is available to cultivate that, dynamic and uh based on that there's like a four or five years of working and um you know learning the techniques and all it was just the nature of the game i was equally interested in analyzing it as like acquiring language and what it meant to uh further that language how to speak back in that language so it, it was never kind of a, a i had a broader vision i i knew intuitively that there was a lot of potential here.
0: So you started working on it for a reason. There was a trigger. You were trying to challenge the colonial mindset um, that's pretty much prevalent even to this day in Pakistan. But once you started doing miniature painting, was it as interesting as you had anticipated? Did you just take on miniature painting as a challenge? And when was it that you developed interest for it? Yeah,
1: well, because the interest you cultivate, right?
0: My hmm. reasoning
1: to go into the art school was very clear. Like I knew that for me art was not just about a hobby. Or right. it, it had <laughs> for me art was really about change. It had the potential for change. It was hmm. always about um how to think outside of the Mm. box how to come up with creative solutions it was about yeah about you know how ideas are generated and then the fruition towards an idea like how do you that type of thinking is creative thinking so for me art was really about problem solving through creative thinking
0: so what was the problem you were trying to solve through miniature painting
1: yes so the problem itself i think was what we understood as tradition because i think at that time everything around me was dictating that tradition was bad and inferior and an artist had to be modern to be avant-garde so so you know when you when you think of that and you think okay miniature painting it's pre-colonial history you know was um, like it's history how it's being consumed and shared and talked about was also coming from a very um orientalist colonial perspective Mm -hmm. so then if you want to understand the broader practice you had to think about the English colonial era the dispersion the revival of the arts you know within the institution itself so Mm -hmm. in that sense the identity of Pakistani art was very much in flux If you think of it like that, then, you know, immediately you start recognizing that there's a sort of a deep stigma in how we understand and identify with tradition.
0: And that's so true for other aspects of tradition as well. When we look at language, I feel like even when I was growing up, and I'm sure it's true for you, the idea of being fluent in Urdu was in a way stigmatized.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, these are such deep-rooted aspects of, I guess, a colonial baggage too. Things have not been, you know, rooted out and challenged and readdressed. I recall uh, in high school, and I went mm-hmm. to the convent to the convent of Jesus and Mary, so of course you know that for your audience that doesn't understand there's a in northern India in pakistan there's there's a whole history of the colonial schooling education too, so going to a Catholic school doesn't necessarily mean that you had to be Catholic or you're non Muslim that history of like private schooling via Catholic schools versus very few, you know, government schools that were around at that mm. time. If your education is going through those channels, then you were aware because at I think around grade seven or eight, you would either go into matriculation where the board of education yeah. is local, right? And then, or you would go into O-levels or A-levels or Cambridge, whatever it was, senior Cambridge, right? So. Right. Then right there is uh, that that kind of the shift would happen, right? Who was the focus would be on English schooling. So that had that probably hasn't been dismantled. Obviously, there's more choices by now and more schools that have come into play. But those choices were very limited. So the pressure, I don't speak good Punjabi at all. And my Mm. mother is Punjabi speaking. And I wondered always like why we shied away? Why wasn't, you know, the language cultivated better? Even Urdu, you know, mm-hmm. the highbrow Urdu, understanding Urdu poetry. I, I need assistance with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, and I think it was just frowned upon. And that is the irony of it all, right? It's a local language that we should all take pride in, but people in Pakistan don't take pride in it. And we are seeing a continuous erasure of our languages because of that, because there is no effort being put and there isn't a way to cultivate those languages and make them more palatable to the general population, I guess. Shansi, I want to talk about your art, how it represents or doesn't represent tradition, culture, what does authenticity mean? Now, in your words, your work stands in opposition to the idea of homogeneous and authentic national cultures. In fact, you ask instead that we understand these terms like tradition or culture and identity as unstable, abstract, and constantly evolving In your opinion, what are some of the problematic outcomes of holding on to uniformity or that homogeneous idea of tradition and culture?
1: Culture, if anything, culture is unstable. It's Mm. all about change. And also it's such an encyclical notions, right? So Mm. how, for me, um, like just bringing it you know let's bring it back to looking at miniature painting for example right. let's explain that to your audience like a lot of people don't necessarily actually understand what that term is and right that the term itself is you know is is problematic because it mm. comes from the legacy of colonialism so even as early as 1600s you know the there were encounters with the european merchants scholars that were in um, South Asia. So the encounters that they had with the visual traditions during that era, and then they start calling the manuscript painting traditions as miniatures is also because they were visually similar to their traditions. So that Mm -hmm. term that gets placed in miniatures is a very colonial term.
0: I didn't know that.
1: (laughs) And now there has begun a move that's kind of to move away from the term as, you know, as those fields are being decolonized too. So in the background, now imagine that there are collectors in recent Mm. decades, particularly, that Mm. have continued to cut out and kind of disperse these paintings all over the world for profit. So hmm. when you think of miniature painting, it is really a very truncated history of the canon, of hmm. visual traditions from Central and South Asia. So now imagine that a book of Kells or you know any gospel medieval Western manuscript, would it ever be ripped out one by one, their pages? Nobody would dare. Nobody has done that. And yet mm. the traditions of, of such manuscript traditions from uh, visual, actual illuminated manuscripts, books, etc. from India, Persia, Turkey, they have been ripped apart. And the genre itself is about destruction. It is about looting, plundering and mm. how... You cannot disassociate that with its history and context. So in that sense, that's what has always been uh, also a very core idea that I'm interested in pursuing. So I think of myself very much as a, you know, as as somebody who's like a detective, because I'm looking Mm. at art. And now where is most of it? Most of it sits in Western museums storages. So, right. you know, there's a huge amount of art at, at the British Museum, at the British Library, at the Met, and many, many institutions in the West. And then or in private collections, perhaps many that have yet to be published. When so much of that is not necessarily available, the archives are not necessarily accessible to people. So, how do you really come to terms and understand what that visual history is that that we are saying is you know, part of our heritage. That is what intrigues me, is that so much of it, unless it comes, uh, becomes visible through exhibitions, you don't necessarily know what some of the visual works are. And even if it does appear in exhibitions, if the exhibitions are always happening in the Western institutions, how much of that actually uh, you can get to see? So growing up in Pakistan, learning miniature painting, was you never saw the actual work. Your relationship with, quote-unquote, your own tradition was being cast through a facsimile.
0: Why do you think we are not seeing more of it in places like Pakistan?
1: Well, it is also, it's a direct legacy of colonial histories. It's been dispersed, it's been taken away, you know, it's been looted or whatever. It's not, it doesn't exist in the region. And also Pakistan, we're talking about the historical documents, historical archives. We're talking Mm. about an era before Pakistan comes into being, right? This is early histories. It's pre-partition. That is just to give you guys, you know, give you an idea of what the term miniature painting tradition comes from, what, what that encompasses. That's where I'm kind of my kind of niche, what I'm talking in particular about is the visual painterly traditions that mm. are of a bit large, broad area, and Pakistan is part of it in terms of the region because it goes all the way into Central Asia and South Asia.
0: Talking about Pakistan, Shazia, um, I know you're a self-proclaimed citizen of the world, and um, there is something about um, being in another country that makes us reevaluate our previous ideas and feelings about our country of origin or whatever we call home and wherever home is. Has your, um, you know, move to the US or have your travels? shifted your perspective on Pakistan and Pakistani culture. How do you view it? And again, I want to talk about this in the context of authenticity, because sometimes I feel like as immigrants, um, when we leave our country of origin, by definition, people who are left behind see us or view us as less authentic. However, when we have kids and offspring in another country, we somehow see them less authentic. So in a way, all of us are trying to be gatekeepers of authenticity, right?
1: It's a, you know, it's a very vague term for hmm. can, that can be used or abused for something I, for me, um, when as an artist making art, you are in dialogue with the artistic community, with the community. So if, I, if I'm making art, it is always in conversation with a broader consciousness, surrounded by it in, in immediate environments or even in terms of how, even in my dialogue with history, right? My art is not performing my identity. Mm. So even if it was, each of us have their own identity to understand and present it as we, we understand it.
0: But has there been anything that you can see more clearly now? For instance, um, I feel like there are certain practices that I can call out more now since I am removed from those practices and I'm not as immersed in them. And there are certain things that I value more about Pakistan and Pakistani traditions because, again, I'm removed from them. And when I was growing up in Pakistan, I took some of it for granted.
1: Going back to, say, 1993 is when I came to the U.S., hmm. my first time. Or like hmm. even in, in, in terms of the early, say, the first few years of being in another culture or being in the U.S. for the first five, six, seven, ten years. The most significant shift that I experienced was to really realize how diverse South Asian identity was.
0: Oh.
1: And also like to take a freer understanding and ownership with the syncretic and very complex history of South Asia. So I became incredibly interested in overlapping themes and visual arts between, you know, everything, Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, all of that, all mm. of those traditions percolate in the South Asian um, idea of visual identity. They're all there, they have all played a role and have, they are so layered. And so that became, understanding that was um, something that was natural in having kind of a distance. So on leaving, say your, you know, your city, wherever we live, like kind of moving away from that, that objectivity that comes with distance. Right. That played a role for sure. And, and so I became more interested in, in reading books or gravitating to historical, you know, literature and poetry, as well as digging deeper into the different sort of ways of understanding some of that South Asian identity and its complexity.
0: Was there something that shocked you? Was there something that you discovered about South Asian identity? And you were like, wow, I didn't know this growing up in Pakistan.
1: Well, I think growing up in that time before internet and, you know, of course, as I'm sure you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: traveling to India was never simple. I think I had only (laughs) been there once for a Uh short trip, but you couldn't just get up and travel to India. You could never get visas. And um, so that lack of familiarity, and yet knowing that, you know, pre partition, the cultures was so like, there was no Pakistan. So what is a Pakistani identity? Why is it hmm. always in this kind of very complex and twisted? And the paradox of it is that it's not just, you know, so many years old, it's, deeper so when it's deeper then how do you take ownership of that of that history before mm. before pakistan comes into being so what started to happen for me was that my work started to yeah i would say breach the national boundaries that that's mm. definitely something that starts to happen in the work and so at that time it's not just about oh, it's all the work is becoming American. I think the work is questioning some of these nationalistic boundaries and categories.
0: How restrictive do you think it is for an artist, especially like yourself, who is exploring ideas of tradition and culture? And as you mentioned, there was no Pakistan before, partition. So there is a lot of overlap in terms of Artistic expression in terms of different art forms that are used between India and Pakistan. How restrictive do you think it is for you to not be able to explore that part of it because you cannot travel to India as much or because of all the crazy geopolitics of that region? Definitely.
1: I think uh, in the early years when I was wanting to say go work in Baroda with a couple of artists, Kulam Sheikh, And Anila Sheikh, as a much younger artist, I was keen to go there. U.S. was not uh, something that I was thinking about. And my inability to actually get the visas or the political situation being such that, you know, one couldn't just get up and go work in Baroda. So then that itself was incredibly disappointing and Coming to the U.S. behind that is like, you know, wanting yeah. to do other things, but but not being able to. So this traveling on a Pakistani passport for all these years, I'm sure all Pakistanis relate to that. Like the difficulty in getting visas, even, even for many years, even a visa to the U.K. While being in the U.S. on a green card and wanting to go, even if I had an exhibit in the U.K., there were times when you know, when the visa application was ridiculous, like 40 pages.
0: This episode is presented by Away Travel. Quite simply, Away makes everything you need for trip away. It's a perfect suitcase for somebody like me who travels long distance and wants to stay connected on the go. My favorite color, blush. Away started with the perfect suitcase that built from there, creating a range of travel standards developed from the travel stories of friends and seatmates. The pieces aren't smart, they're thoughtful, with features that solve real travel problems. Your Away suitcase will be with you for life. And we at Immigrantly are so excited to be teaming up with Away and Podgo to give you the best deal on premium luggage. By going to Podgo.co/Away, that's Podgo.co/Away. Away Travel is here to make your journey seamless. I want to go back to your decision to come to the U.S. because I think we were going to talk about that and then we pivoted to something else. Why did you decide to come to the U.S. and what was that experience like, like the first time you landed here? So that's
1: a very, actually such a wonderful story. Because I, when I graduated from the National College of Arts in 1991, Hmm. there was my thesis that i put forth you know it got a lot of attention it argued that that the craft based engagement with miniature painting and you could insert experimentation with that like it argued for it and questioned the prejudices we collectively had towards that and it encouraged a lot of students to join in and Mm. all of a sudden there was a huge Group of people wanting to study miniature painting. So uh, I was asked to come and teach. I was really young and many of the students were just a year or two younger to me. And, you know, it was exciting, but at the same time, the politics of academia are harsh. And I knew that either I would have to just learn to deal with that and put all my time and energy into that, or I still needed to grow as an artist. So I think at that time I was wanting to look for support or, you know, financial aid or scholarships to Um. go study further. And I started to look where I would like to go. So I wanted to go to Baroda, but I couldn't. You know, most faculty, not most, but several faculty has gone to London. So of course then, several colleges of London would come up like Slade or RCA or at that time, I think those two. And then I remember applying, getting into Slade, not not having the financial, um, means. Cause yeah. then at that time I wrote to the Pakistani ambassador to the U S, uh, Abdul Hussain. And, um, uh, that they should support our art, art, art. Right. <laughs> uh, it would be good for diplomacy also, right? So like, hmm. and I, and that they should support young artists. So I remember getting that conversation with her after a year of writing and visiting her and eventually like they asked me that if I wanted to show my work, I could send it to accompany a 20, March 23rd event. Okay. That's kind of I I was going to send my art and literally I think several days before the work was to be sent, I was told I could travel standby hmm. and actually bring my work with me. So that was my first trip was a standby ticket on Pakistani Airlines to exhibit my work at the Pakistani Embassy in Washington DC in 1993.
0: And did you go back to Pakistan then?
1: Yeah, so I arrived and at that time you could get, a, a, for tourists, there was a Sea America ticket. And that was, huh. uh, that was something that my father got me, which was amazing because you could travel around the U.S. anywhere as many times. It was a unlimited, like those Euro Trail tickets that used to be, it, it was on Delta, and it was on standby but it was valid for a few months so you could travel as many times as long as you could get a seat yeah. so i had that with me the work was up at the pakistani embassy for a day or maybe a few days nobody bought anything the work was so mm. i had priced it all under maybe 100 or 50 dollars oh, wow. <laughs> And I was so disappointed when nobody purchased anything. And, you know, they were all like Pakistani expats, right, from yeah. D.C., mostly probably doctors or people that <laughs> work in the banks. And, and you know, so that, that right there and then you can see like uh, we were nobody wanted to support a young artist. Nobody wow. wanted to buy thought worthy of buying a piece of art. And they were all small drawings. There were, I think, more than 40 such drawings that I had hung there. Not a single work sold. I'm so... <laughs> sure Shazia, they regret it now. <laughs> no, but see, but like the beauty of that is that it fired me up. I was, of uh-huh. course, disappointed. But then I had all that material. So I put it in a portfolio, called up various art schools, went and visited the schools and got myself, I think I got admission into three or four schools
0: wow and wow.
1: and at that time, it was okay, let's see you know where I could get financial assistance also hmm. so um, I sat in the library, I think, in Chicago, and read through a book somebody had given me, and came across a kind of a scholarship fund or what something for graduate students based on the premise that if they paid if you got it and they paid towards it it would become a loan if you stayed in the country. Whatever you were acquiring as a as a master's, you would go back and put it into application. So it could kind of, you know, things like that, that I remember reading and coming across. I applied, it was a women chapterhood they, that ended up paying towards tuition. I shared hmm. that with another Pakistani artist. She also got the same thing that paid towards her schooling. So, you know, it was just this, situation where you had to learn to be resourceful. But I in my early experience of the U.S., it was that if you dug deeper, you could find resources.
0: So you finish your master's and then you decide to stay here. What triggered that?
1: Yeah. So uh, I think as a foreign student, you get a year that comes mm. along on the student visa right. uh, where you can put or whatever, your, whatever you, whatever you've acquired, you can put it into application, right? I forget the term of that period, but you get one year to continue in the U.S.
0: I think it's called OPT, if I am not mistaken. So I had that, and I knew that you know, okay, I, I, I
1: wanted to look for a job. So I was applying for teaching jobs after I finished my master's, which was at the Rhode Island School of Design, and huh. then also I started applying for residencies. Those are, that's another platform for artists. So I, got, I decided to do a residency with the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Hmm. So I did that. It was for a year. And then it was uh, renewable for another year. And in that period, I applied for a green card based on, I think, a category called Extraordinary Ability. And I was able to um, get it. But the actual card didn't happen for eight years.
0: Oh my God, yeah, it takes so long, the process itself. That itself was such a dilemma because you were, I,
1: I couldn't travel in that entire yeah. period. And that is a very long time. You know, like the world changed. 9-11 happened. <laughs> I
0: right. was
1: unable to travel. So that created this kind of a further sort of a rift or distancing where I didn't see family for many years. I did, I couldn't go back and forth. But, you know, but at the same time, then I was like, okay, I'll take, I I, I just took that time and started to, you know, uh, make work and delve deeper. And um, I was, uh, yeah, in 97, I think got, I got into the Whitney Biennial. I got into some other shows in New York. So I decided to take that plunge and move <laughs> there rather than go in the direction of teaching because I had a job that I had applied to and that I had gotten, which was at the University of Texas, Austin.
0: How was the teaching experience? Did you teach at all? I have taught here and there, but never full-time. Did you enjoy
1: it? Yeah, I was teaching at uh, Brooklyn College as well as Columbia. I continue to work with graduate students, you know, where, where I, I can go visit them, see their work, have conversations around uh, their particular practice, as well as um, you know, talk about the actual studio practice, and then also a much more critical approach to to understanding and talking through them with them, what their work means. So I kind of do that all over the country.
0: Shazi, I read somewhere that when you moved to the US, you started to wear a veil in public, um, and you called it a performance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was just part of a
1: class project. And I know okay. that it has been like something like that will get blown up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what, what was the trigger behind it? And what were you trying to achieve through it?
1: Um, you know, basically, that really was a how, um, unfortunately, the persistence of the veiled character, it kind of persists in the Western imagination. Right. And I was questioning I was I think it was a project that uh one was doing with um reading Fatima Marnisi. So questioning, you know, a lot of um feminist scholars and I was mm. juxtaposing um people that I had been reading, which were ma- basically the Western scholars like Helen Susseux even like Bell Hooks and Julia Kristeva, et cetera, Angela Carter, but then also like juxtaposing, bringing in conversations, mm. um Ismat Chuktai, Famida Riaz, Kishwar Naheed, even Praveen Shakir and and um Fatma Mernisi, and then questioning, you know, how certain representations persist. So mm. that that was done with that kind of idea in mind in terms of, uh, you know, how even at, at that time, yeah, that's when th- this kind of save Muslim women <laughs> is the premise for the invasion of Afghanistan too. Right, so like right. how the, some of those aspects get pronounced and how, you know, um, where, where, where that idea is coming from, how deeply rooted is this sort of orientalist, deep-rooted ideas and fetish. So that's what I was questioning because I wanted to understand what it meant as a, as a problematic icon, as an image that, you know, that um, no matter what, who I was, this is something that was always being projected onto me. No matter what, like you were in the U.S. and you would be asked to represent a big culture. You would be asked to speak on behalf of a culture or the stereotype idea that persisted about that culture. Right. So Hmm. it was a tongue in cheek kind of thing that I did. But I also was curious that what would happen if I actually how do people respond and behave? So how did they yeah, it was it was uh, it was all very, you know, it was interesting. It was either you were anonymous or you were you stood out. And then mm. also you could offend others or stood. And it was just within the institution. So it wasn't like, oh, you know, oh, so it's like an art school project. <laughs> ha, ha,
0: ha, ha. That's so interesting, because I know I've read about um, how your work also explores different dimensions of female identity. Right. And We talk a lot about identity on Immigrantly, but what I find fascinating or interesting about talking about identity, especially female identity in America, is that there are so many contradictions. Because on the one hand, for instance, I consider myself an immigrant, a woman of color, Pakistani woman. Now, all of this does bring a lot of nuances, but sometimes It becomes restrictive because everybody is like filtering through those labels and seeing me in the in the context of all those collective labels. Right. How do you navigate these dynamics in your work, all these different layers of identity as a woman uh, with multitude of layers? Yeah, I
1: think the paradox is always there, you know, just kind of to close that earlier topic we were talking about. It was for me, when I kind of, you know, did the performance, I was also soliciting what how people's reactions were towards me towards that idea. I was also looking at how identity is so mercurial like if I wore it now is everybody going to think of me a certain way if I took it off is that going to become a gesture in of itself so I was questioning how you know um, mask the identity is such a mask it's on the surface and so as I developed my paintings of that era it became that image is very traumatized image it's an image which almost looks like a kind of a armature or like a perforated armor or a shelter or a shell mm. because maybe it's that shuttlecock burka all kind of kind of a haunted image so that was for me that was really that cage-like form that emerges in some of that work and maybe we can show that work when i made that it has a door it has a pink heart that's kind of lurking inside. But I was also tapping into my anxiety of being boxed into a stereotype on behalf mm. of a culture or religion. As an artist, you know, you're questioning things that are culturally prevalent, but that mm. are historically embedded also in this kind of the whole history of how West, uh, these monolithic categories of West versus East, West versus Islam. Right. These are very problematic spaces. And then also in terms of being a person of color or who's seen as the immigrant, Mm -hmm. who's Mm -hmm. seen. So when you think of like, who's the other, who's the outsider, what is Asian, what is oppressive, what is free, like these types of dichotomies that start to kind of linger in that language, especially in, in the U.S. in terms of who belongs with us and who's the outsider,
0: That's so true. And especially, I mean, when it comes to topics of immigration, specifically borders, right? Borders and even
1: feminism, even when you think as a female artist, you know, when you, if I was to locate, say, the South Asian representation in that time Mm. in the 90s, in the feminist space, Mm. art history books of 1990s, you know, often just said, Third world feminism, and that was it. It was like this very big category in which, Mm. you know, you were supposed to just sit in there. That types of, say, what do you call it? Like the blind spots of white Mm. feminism, those exclusions (laughs) that that were very prevalent, you know, so that then you have to intellectually um, diversify the space too, not just racially.
0: Yeah, and we see that now. There are more, I guess, palatable labels. I don't call myself a feminist. I call myself an intersectional feminist because my experiences as a feminist are not the same as white feminists' experiences. And that's the reality that we all have to reconcile with um, because it adds a, a different layer of nuance and identity that people who are like women who are white and identify as feminists may not be able to relate to. Shazi, in your work, I see that most of your artistry is impacted by environmental context. And we've talked about it. You've experimented with it. You have basically taken different forms, um, dismantled and rebuilt them. What kind of creative process do you go through or you find yourself when it comes to responding to certain environmental contexts? Because sometimes what you're capturing as an artist, um, something that you're creating may be beautiful, but it's based on something traumatic or something horrific, right?
1: Um... Climate change, climate issues, those are right. those are kind of all, you know, again, deeply rooted to the whole mechanism, you know, of power
0: mm. and
1: uh, resources, how trade functions, right? So if you look at the migration patterns, you also look at the um, history of trade and how commodities and bodies shift across geographies and those are those are violent histories. Those are mm. histories that have been about extraction too. So yeah, so I think in that with that that theme has also emerged in my work, recent films that I've done, which uh, which really kind of a play with the with this sort of struggle between nature and human, mm. and also the the dynamics how you know death plays a role in uh, so many genres like revolutionary poetry the kind of language of of uh, the language of the garden or the revolution uh, the the garden as the, the chaman right right that idea what it means in terms of the this kind of dance of metamorphosis humans participation in nature so there's a there's there's a whole kind of animation process that i've done which plays with this idea of how human exists in the world and mm. um and then there are more paintings where literally you know i'm looking at uh, as the symbols of extraction and over there i'm looking at the history of oil mm. there's um there's a series called the christmas trees where literally the oil rigs were called christmas trees when mm. i was doing research they were in from british petroleum magazines uh from 1960s in, in the uae in Oman, you know, in that region, oil rigs are first called Christmas trees. So when I came across those photographs, I was, um, I didn't know that that was the term and they didn't look like trees. They were just like rigs, you know? So I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to question that. Is it this very ingenious English wit on the gift bearing (laughs) capacity of the oil rigs or what? So I did a whole series, which, um, there are, there's a series called Oil and Poppies, where they also kind of the oil rigs that have been made into Christmas trees exist also in conversation with the opium flower. But mm. it's sort of a a kind of a, it alludes to the opium industry in Afghanistan and the long term U.S. intervention and conflict there. So, mm. you know, then there's another one, um, there's a series called FLARED, which again was a uh, on the climate crisis, the endless wildfires that were in California oh. and other parts, you know, um, like in Australia also. So there's a whole uh, series around that too. So, so it was about, you know, what the images, the symbols of extraction, hmm. how do you counter that with, uh, with what is then the counter to that? What is abundance? And is that human imagination? Is it literature, the art?
0: Right. So with COVID, I believe things have changed. But are there any upcoming exhibitions that people can look forward to or go and see in person or is everything online still?
1: No, I think uh, it's uh, a lot of of the work is online um, Hmm. in general, I think in the art world, but shows are happening. I recently had an exhibition in New York that was uh, in November, December, And the next one is uh, going to open in June at the Hmm. Morgan uh, Library Museum in Manhattan. That is actually a retrospective of my work. So you will be able to see that in person. It'll be uh, up for several months. And then that work travels to uh, the Rhode Island School of Design's museum and then to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. So it sort of follows my trajectory because <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I came to Providence, then moved to Texas, to Houston, and then moved to New York. So,
0: Shazia, where can people find your work online? Yes,
1: uh, my website is very concise. There's a lot of information available on, um, it's just shaziyasekander.com.
0: And in the end, I ask my guests this question. I want to get your answer on it, especially because you're an artist and you do explore the nuances of um, cultures and traditions. If you were to describe America, how would you do that? Well,
1: for me, I think America is really a a place which is constantly shifting and changing and morphing. And it's a shapeshifter. And I, mm. I kind of, in that way, I, I think of it as a, another protagonist in the work. And uh, that's how I, for me, it's a place where, you know, there's always this language, geography, identity, borders. They are constantly in flux.
0: If you were to create some kind of a painting or an art form out of this, like idea of how you see America, what do you think it would look like? Well, I did make a painting. Oh, I you think did? You, yes. <laughs> it is about American imperial history,
1: about American capital, mm. and also its interface with Islamic countries. Oh, and wow. you can look it up. It's on my, it will be on display also at the Morgan Museum. But it was actually done for a New York Times magazine in 1999 where they invited artists to imagine what would be kind of the big issue in the millennium. Ah. And I proposed that um, the U.S. foreign policy in Islamic countries would be a very polarizing idea and something that would occupy us. And this was two years before 9-11 happened. And so that work, I think is a very interesting work because it does uh, center with the Statue of Liberty and also on uh, uh, two two characters. There is the inscription from the Quran, <laughs> which yeah. is placed on the American currency. And, you know, it's got a lot of different um, players and their portraits in there. So it's sort of the shifting global alliances over the years, over the last several years between Muslim leaders and the American empire. Yeah, it's about war, coalitions, sanctions, deaths, human rights, uh, mili- military muscle, all of that. <laughs> and So I would say that, you know, I've done a piece like that. And I don't think we have changed that much.
0: <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you. Would you create a different piece now that it's been 20 years? But it seems like what you're describing hasn't. Like-
1: yeah, it's called. um. Yeah, so. So, yeah, so. You know, again, I think, of course, over there, I think one thing that, that is very interesting is that in that painting, when it's done, Iraq, you know, Saddam Hussein is our friend, not a foe. Oh. <laughs> so you can see how that happens, how, you know, the, the alternating notion of friend and foe.
0: That's so fascinating, Shazi. I can't wait to see that painting. Yes, it's online.
1: You can, yeah. it was reviewed also in Hyperallergic um yeah. for in a recent exhibition which was at the asia society so you can if you typed it in it will show up it's called the many faces of islam
0: oh interesting thank you so much shazia this was so good thank you for taking the time out i know you're busy and you're great artist and I can't wait to check your exhibition in June and this particular painting now. Well, thank you so much for
1: inviting me, Sadia, to this platform. I really appreciate it and I look forward to, you know, to the summer, to being able to show you uh, the work in person.
0: Okay, what a fun interview. Don't forget to check Shazia's painting. I am so excited. I'm going to do that right after I wrap up this interview. Don't forget to check our Patreon and our GoFundMe. Our website is immigrantlypod.com. Until next time, take care.